I'm your host, William Tapley, also known as the Third Eagle of the Apocalypse. Stop, the stop, 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 stop. You cannot make it look like William Tapley is supporting our program. Sorry, folks. Chris Roseborough here, just to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. And no, William Tapley is not our spokesperson. Uh, if you don't already support us financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute. $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And, of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Monday, October 17th, 2011. My brain hurts. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is no shortage of crazy things being said out there as a result of it. Well, we've well, we got some cleanup work to do. It's 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 getting <laughs> getting it's bad out there getting worse let's just put it that way so um yeah just because somebody has an open bible doesn't mean they're teaching you what the bible teaches um that's kind of the problem as a result of it there's just people running around the landscape and in all of the thing that is really just hmm, depressing i think that's the right word i'm looking for the thing that's really depressing about all of this is that um, this is occurring in Protestant circles. And I'm talking about the wider evangelical Protestantism, you know. It, and the reason why this is uh, very discouraging and depressing in, in, at times is because you think about the the significance, the significance of what happened uh, during the Reformation, okay? Christianity, uh, the, the, the biblical gospel... Um, yeah, it, let's just put it this way. God has never left himself without a remnant, but things got really bad during the uh, during the medieval period as a result of the fact that the Bible was locked up. That's probably the right way of putting it. It was locked up in the Latin language. And uh, and as a result of that happening, um, people were not hearing the word of God in a language that meant anything to them they so they you know so you could show up at a mass in the uh, in a medieval catholic church 
and uh, and basically hear the whole thing from the, the liturgy, the you know the God's word, everything from beginning to end in Latin, and um, you probably wouldn't have a clue as to what on earth was going on there, unless of course you were taught the Latin language. But uh, the the thing is, is that um, Luther rightly pointed out that the cross, Jesus's cross, is the key to unlocking the scriptures. And uh, and what happens when people don't hear the message of the cross properly preached? They don't hear repentance and the forgiveness of sins. They don't hear law properly distinguished from gospel. Law being preached in such a way as to condemn a sinner, to show him his need for a savior, and the gospel preached uh, so that people know that they have a loving God who is forgiving, merciful, and gracious as a result of what Christ has done on the cross. If you don't get those categories correct, then you're gonna you're gonna oh man, you don't get the cross right. You're you're not gonna get much else right either. That's kind of the problem. About the only thing you're going to get right is the law, and that's not hard to to get the law right, at least in some senses, uh, because we all have the law written on our hearts. But the gospel is an alien message. It is a message you can't find in nature. It's a message that's not written on our hearts. The gospel is a message that comes to us from outside of ourselves and points us to the cross of Jesus Christ. What was he doing there, being beaten, scourged, bruised, pierced? And dying and bleeding for our sins. Was he just trying to set some kind of a cool example that we can follow? No, the scriptures tell us that uh, what was happening there at the cross was that our sins were laid on him. That uh, our transgressions were imputed to Christ as if he is the one who, who, who committed them. The sinless one became the sinner whom God punished in our place. And so if you don't get that right and you, and that if you don't understand that the the message of the cross is central to Christianity um so many people nowadays I mean they, they'll sit there and they'll say yeah I believe Jesus died for my sins but why do you I mean that's just baby stuff that's stuff that you preach to somebody who's just making a decision for Jesus but once somebody has made a decision to become a Christ follower yeah you just leave the cross behind you got to get busy you got to get you got to get rolling you got to get cranking with the uh, uh, with that uh, progressive sanctification thing, because if you don't get that right, you're not going to make it in. And see, that's the problem. That's the way they preach sanctification. It's if you don't get sanctification right, you ain't going to get in. Where did the cross just go at that point? Um, that's lip service to the cross. That's not the cross essential. So the cross is the central message that all Christians need to hear. Not just somebody who's a baby Christian, but each and every one of us, because each and every one of us daily sins much against God. We need to constantly have Jesus Christ placarded before us so that we know that God is merciful towards us for the sake of Christ, because of what Christ has done. And if you're not hearing the gospel being preached to you, Christian, um, you may not be in a church that's safe for you to be in. If you are basically being told constantly, uh, listen, you're not living up to God's standards, so you got to try harder. Um, that's actually not the road to holiness. That's, that, that's, that's a message that will actually send you down a different road. And we're going to talk about that on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. So, all right, so uh, kind of enough of that. we got a lot of ground to cover today. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to start off with a couple of just bizarre 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 stories um we got a story coming out of massachusetts 
that um, there, there's a church there in Massachusetts where the um, um, the elderly men of the church have made a calendar, and um, and the calendar purposely is designed to make well the photographs of these churchmen are designed to make it look like uh, well that they're um, naked. Um, but uh, don't worry, they have each of the different men, you know, who range in age from 67 to 80, have different things strategically uh, obscuring the photograph so as to so that you don't see them. <sighs> yeah, and you know, just take a look at that story. Um, Chelly's has a weird story. I've been getting it like a ton of emails on this one. And the name of the uh, Chally's blog post is called Are You Serious? <laughs> And I gotta tell you, this is the first time I'd ever heard of this guy. Um, and uh, we're gonna have to take a look at him. Uh, I've put him on my watch list, people to pay attention to. Uh, but then from there, after we uh, kind of you know start the program off with some of our more bizarre items, uh, we're gonna just switch gears and get into a couple more serious topics. Um, um, so I've got a, a Tulian uh, Tavigian uh, article entitled "Law Without Gospel Leads to Licentiousness." Law without gospel leads to licentiousness. And I think uh, Tulian's right on on the mark here with this one. Um, and then uh, I got a Phil Johnson post called "The Necessity of Biblical Th- Theology with Christ at the Center." The necessity of biblical theology with Christ at the center. And then to round out our news coverage for the day, we're gonna uh, we're gonna finish up with an Al Mohler piece entitled "Are Evangelicals Dangerous?" He was able to uh, write for the CNN Religion blog, and. Uh, and it, it with uh, the presidential election and politics in full swing for the next uh, the next general election in the United States, uh, there's some strange stuff going on. So uh, Albert Mueller has uh, weighed in with the question: Are, are evangelicals dangerous? And uh, and then what we're going to do? Uh, I'll fin. Actually, technically, I'm going to finish off with a news story that will lead us into the second hour with our uh, human. Uh, human sermon review i'm reading my notes here and i got words transposing in my mind uh but the, i'm going to be reviewing a, a brian bloy uh sermon and uh the name of the, the sermon is stupid human tricks a a life well wasted and he's actually uh, uh brian bloy of westridge church down there in uh, dallas georgia he was able to get some ink in the uh, christian post and uh, i'm going to be reviewing it, it's a, it's a bad sermon that's that well there's a lot of scripture in this pat in this sermon but it's scripture that misses the whole point um so i come back to what i said and this is kind of going to be one of our themes for the whole program and this is the idea that without the cross the bible remains a closed book if you don't understand that the cross and christ are at the center of biblical theology that the cross and christ and what he's done for us on the cross the gospel is the center of theology then what happens is is that the Bible remains a closed book for you, regardless of how many times you read it. Why? Because you're always going to read it with the law in mind and not the gospel. And you have to, in, in, if you understand the cross, then you understand the proper distinction of law and gospel. That the law doesn't save; it's the gospel that saves. And uh, and so uh, you know, we're going to be looking at a sermon where uh, a seeker-driven guy does, well, there's a lot of scripture in this regarding the life of Samson, but talk about missing the point, and as a result of it, the gospel completely gets, well, obscured and kind of obliterated. 
So uh, we got a lot of ground to cover. Make yourself comfortable. Fuzzy bunny slippers, just so you know, they do enhance your listener experience. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, don't have a problem with that. Always keep in mind, though, the biblical prohibition against drunkenness. Uh, you don't want to be enslaved to a gift that God has given us. That's, well, it's silly and stupid. Anyway, so uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. All right, what is my news source here? All right, the headline reads, Hottest Elderly Church Calendar Ever. Oh, man. Okay, so if you want to see this, and I don't know why anybody would want to see this, um, I've uh, I went ahead and uh, added this as an exhibit to the Museum of Idolatry. One of the, aside from running Pirate Christian Radio and uh, and and uh, doing my uh, the production work and and being the host of Fighting for the Faith, um, one of the other things I do is I am the curator of an internet-based museum called the Museum of Idolatry, and you can find it at the website a little leaven dot com. A little lemon, uh, not lemon. Man, <clears throat> strike two. My brain is not in 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 uh, sharp form today. It's at a little leaven dot com. A little leaven dot com. All right. So uh, yeah. So the uh, the the headline reads: the hottest elderly church calendar ever. Hang on to your socks. Here we go. Grinning and nearly bearing it all, take a look at the boys of the first parish in Framingham showing off some skin to raise money for their church. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay. So <laughs> just so you know what we're talking about here, there's a church in Framingham, Massachusetts, and uh, the... the um, the elderly men of the congregation have put together their own calendar as a fundraiser, and they're they're seeing, well, all kinds of skin, you know. You can tee it up with Mr. August. There's Mr. March strumming on a well-placed banjo. And how about this easy rider? Ladies, get revved up for Mr. September. On a scale of 1 to 10, how do you look? In the picture? Totally awesome for an old guy. <laughs> the oldest of this bold bunch, a retired pastor in his 80s who says he's proud of his body. The older body has its own el- Oh, man. Oh, man. <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, uh, y- y'all seen the uh, the movie The Lord of the Rings. Um, the Gollum character there, um, he, uh, well, um, let me just put it this way. He has the uh, the the best quote that I think absolutely applies to this calendar. That's right. It it burns. Oh man. It burns my eyes. (laughs) Why on earth would a church, a church think that this is appropriate? Why on earth would a retired pastor in his eighties, he's in his eighties. Why would he do that? This is, this is like abuse of a different kind. Good night. Everybody has its own elegance. There are stories behind every shot. Mr. April loves to sing. And I'm Mr. April. Mr. October has some rod skills. He caught that bass that gave him cover. And Mr. December probably used that racket to swat some bugs during his photo shoot. Eight o'clock at night, and it was June. And as I sat there, uh, sort of naked, 
uh, I fooled everybody except the mosquitoes. They felt special, and they really wanted to do their thing for the church. I think they had a lot of fun, and they really let go of their inhibitions to make this happen. Proving you're never too old to say, We're hot! Uh, <laughs> okay, so uh, here... <laughs> um, here, here's kind of the problem. Um, I did some research, okay, just, you know, trying to figure out what kind of church does something like this, has their, um, their, you know, their 60, 70 and 80 year old guys, um, posing almost naked for a calendar as a fundraiser for the church. How is this even appropriate? Well, it turns out that they're Unitarian Universalists. Which kind of explains, you know, as far as I'm concerned, this is one of those cautionary tales. Uh, this is what happens when false doctrine takes over. Um, you you leave yourself open to all kinds of terrible things. Not only do you, are you risking hell, uh, but you're also risking having your eyes burnt out of your head by having the octogenarians in your congregation um, pose naked for a calendar. So... Uh, the the moral of the story here is you don't. If, this is what happens when false doctrine takes over a church. But there's kind of a secondary story to this. Um, imagine being in Massachusetts and you know and um, and seeing this on the local news. The, the it, now your job as a Christian to share Christ and Him crucified for our sins becomes even that much more difficult because people after seeing this are going to go. What is a Christian church all about? I mean, I don't know if I want to send my kids to a Christian church or if I want to be a part of a church uh, because, I mean, a bunch of perverted old men are going to pose naked for the church calendar as a fundraiser. <laughs> Again, I mean, this is just unbelievable. Anyway, so, I mean, as crazy as a story as it is, you kind of sort of want to laugh, but... There's nothing really funny about it when you really boil it all down because, like I said, what uh, what ends up happening is is that the job of sharing the gospel becomes even that much more difficult. Um, so, yeah, there you go. I I wish the folks at the news story had said, oh, yeah, these are, these are guys affiliated with the Unitarian Universalists who are, well, known for their way liberal theology. But no, that's not how the story covers it. They're, these are just ordinary churchmen. So, okay, from the Chalies, uh, dot com website, the uh, the headline reads, Are you serious? Uh, Chalies writes, he says, Some things go pretty far beyond parody. I have to put John Eldridge's new book, Beautiful Outlaw, in that category. Here's a sample quote, and yes, this is actually taken verbatim from the book. To get the full effect, you should probably read it out loud. Well, you know, Tim, I'm going to do that right now. I'm going to actually read it out loud because if I had just read it, if I read it to myself, that wouldn't make good radio. So uh, I'm going to take Charlie's advice and I'm going to read this out loud. And I got I got to confess, I had not really heard of John Eldridge until Charlie's pointed this out. And, of course, I received like, you know, a thousand emails <laughs> telling me I needed to look at this. But um, anyway, uh, Chally's, so this is, here's the quote from John Eldridge's book entitled Beautiful Outlaw. Let me clear my throat. Here we go. I have had similar encounters with Jesus in healing prayer. Last year, a wise old sage was praying with me through some of the painful memories of my life. I was immediately reminded of the time in middle school when my first girlfriend broke my heart. 
These wounds can linger for a lifetime if you let them. The first cut is the deepest and all of that. So we asked Jesus to take me back to the memory. I saw us, the girl and me. It was that fateful summer day. We were in the living room just as it had as it had happened. And then I saw Jesus enter the room. He was quite stern with her, and it surprised me. That mattered to you? I, I wondered very much, he said. Then Jesus turned to me. I felt his love. I realized I could let the whole thing go. It was so healing. To understand that Jesus is angry about what happened to you is very, very important in understanding his personality, but also in your relationship with him and for your healing. What I love about these encounters is that every time, every time Jesus is so true to his real personality, sometimes fierce, sometimes gentle, always generous and often very playful. <laughs> I don't, I'm not familiar with this Jesus. This is... Uh, Never heard of this Jesus, but it gets better. <clears throat> My son was having a tough freshman year at college. So many students there are bound under the religious fog. It was a lonely fall filled with misunderstanding. One afternoon, just after a classmate said something particularly hurtful to him, Blaine returned to his room and slumped onto his bed. About as low as a young man can get, he looked over to his desk and he saw Jesus sitting there in his desk chair with a smile on his face. He was wearing a pirate hat, and then he disappeared and a whiff a whiff of the Emmaus road <laughs> I'm not familiar with that Jesus either, despite the fact <laughs> I'm captain of pirate christian radio hadn't i I've never really taken ah you know what's so funny is that somebody actually on my Facebook wall about a month or so ago before the um Talk like a pirate day had done some Photoshop work and had made a um, a rendition of Jesus wearing a pirate hat and I think an eye patch and um, it was disturbing. That's about the best I can say about it. But so what? <laughs> Chally's final shot as well. It's a whiff of something, I guess. That 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 was his parting shot. But um, yeah, can you mind if I chime in here? Uh, what is this? Um, how is this Christianity? This is like the Jesus of my imagination who could just pop up at any particular time. And contrary to popular opinion, no, I don't picture Jesus, um, in, in pirate paraphernalia whatsoever. Um, uh, if Jesus appeared to me in pirate paraphernalia, I'm bound to not believe that it's actually the biblical Jesus. Uh, the, 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 the real Jesus, uh, would show up and he would have scars in his hands and his feet and aside you get what i'm saying here um this is just weird stuff um and uh more uh, folks who are you going to believe i mean are you going to believe you know some weird psychological healing technique where you imagine jesus stepping into your memories and making things right um this isn't the biblical gospel okay so here we got john eldridge conjuring up the pain that he felt when his girlfriend dumped him when he was in junior high. Uh, my manly advice to him is get over it. Uh, I mean, how many of us have actually married our junior high sweethearts? I mean, there's not that many out there, and junior high is just an awkward, painful time anyway. 
Um, so, I mean, so I, I don't need to be healed of my memories from junior high. Those actually are important in my maturing process to grow up into a man. You know, you look back and you go, oh, what a wimp I was. You know, you get what I'm saying here? And so, you know, and the thing is, is that, you know, junior high girlfriends uh, dumping you, um, yeah, that happens. Um, probably do just about every dude out there. Um, but then, you know, then you got the high school girlfriends who dump you or the high school girlfriend that you dumped. And, you know, you just realize that, that wasn't the right relationship. Again, I don't need to go into some kind of a therapeutic mode where, you know, it, you know, some kind of a healing prayer where I step through these memories and Jesus somehow comes in and magically fixes them. Okay. Cause here's the deal. Uh, in every single relationship that I've been in, uh, both you know with girlfriends, friends, family doesn't matter. Um, I've been hurt, I've been sinned against, and I've hurt people, and I've sinned against them. Okay, so um, what's needed here, and what the Bible offers as a remedy, is not Jesus running around in a pirate hat fixing your memories and coming into and cleaning everything up. What Jesus instead offers is something more powerful than that. His shed blood on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, the times when you've hurt other people and deeply, and forgiveness for the people who've hurt you, at which you can extend to them as a result of the gospel. So, you know, I I can think of a couple of uh, times girls I had the hots for in junior high. Um, You know, we... You, know, you you write the awkward note, do you like me uh, for a boyfriend, check yes or check no. I mean, isn't that how the junior high uh, relationship always begins, you know, with the, with the awkward note? And then what happens is, you know, you send the note, you know, and you're nervous as heck, waiting for, you know, to get word back from uh, your this junior high girl that you think is cute. And if she's if she hits the check yes box, you know she's yeah you know, the box that says yes. Apparently that means that you are in a in a deep, committed relationship, and that more than likely is going to last all of maybe three, four days, <laughs> and um, and at the end of it, yeah, those breakups can sure be terrible. They you know they can just send you to you. Know, Send you on to the rocks emotionally, but um, yeah. See, at the end of it, can you really say it was a relationship? I mean, <laughs> what was that? You know, it's like, you know, hormones are just starting to you know come into play in junior high, and you know, you're just discovering girls for the first time, and it's just awkward and and well, terrible. It's but you you know, it's all part of growing up. Um, so I don't need Jesus to come in and and scold my junior high girlfriend in a memory I'm having as a, as a junior higher. Um, instead, if, if a junior high girl hurt me as a result of a bad breakup after, you know, a three day relationship, you know how deep those can be. Um, then the, the solution is forgiveness and realize, I mean, the girl was 11, you know, or she was 12. What did I expect? You, you, you get what I'm saying here? Anyway, <sighs> weird stuff. So, uh, you know, thank you, Chalice, for sharing that with all of us. <laughs> it's like, and uh, I'll have to put Mr. Eldridge again, like I said, on my watch list of people because, uh, 
uh, from what I understand, I mean, people have sent me messages going, this guy is really popular in evangelical circles. And why, I have no idea. He's some kind of, it's like he's a free-floating character from the book The Shack. Anyway, we're up on our uh, first break. If you'd like to uh, email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know their tender sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. There's so much crazy stuff going on out there that people that aren't Christians are thinking that the crazy stuff is what Christianity is about. Yeah, we need to help them see that's not the case. 
Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means that we truly do depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions to keep bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. We are listener-supported. So if you don't already support us, visit our website, and uh, there's several ways that you can support us there. Uh, There's two friendly yellow buttons. The uh, Join Our Crew button, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. Um, the Donate button, uh, that is, uh, it makes it possible for you to make a one-time contribution and you can specify the amount. And, of course, you can always do it the traditional way and make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code four. Six zero three eight. Okay, moving along, we're going to kind of change gears here, and uh, we're going to start with a, a short blog post by Phil Johnson entitled uh, "The Necessity of Biblical Theology with Christ at the Center." Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog writing here. He says, several years ago, uh, when I was still fairly new to the blogosphere. Our friends at Nine Marks solicited my response to a survey question for the Nine Marks e-journal. Here's the question followed by my reply. In what ways will a congregation's understanding of salvation and the gospel be limited if their pastors do not have a good grasp of biblical theology? (laughs) That's a great question. In what ways will a congregation's understanding of salvation and the gospel be limited if their pastors do not have a good grasp of biblical theology? Well, the answer is clear from history. Starting with the sad case of the Jewish leaders whom we meet in the Gospels, Jesus frequently scolded them for missing the main point of the Scriptures. They misunderstood the Messianic promise. See John chapter 6, verse 15. They misconstrued the purpose of the law. See Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 25. They overlooked their own desperate need for true justifying righteousness. See Romans chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. They ignored the big picture story of the Old Testament. See John chapter 5, verses 37 through 47. And therefore, they reduced the scriptures to a manual for moralism a manual for legalism, stark sacramentalism, and, hub- and a hubristic kind of uh, nationalism. Jesus' answer again and again was to point out that he is the focus of all the scriptures. Search the scriptures. These are they which testify of me, Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 39. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. John chapter 5, verse 46. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, and, it was, and he was glad. See John chapter 8, verse 56. Even after the resurrection, the disciples did not seem to understand the full import of all of this, so on the road to Emmaus, he gave them an extended overview of the whole sweep of biblical theology. Beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See Luke chapter 24, verse 27. Since Christ is the focus of all the scriptures, no preacher has fully expounded the meaning of any passage until he has shown its relationship to the rest of redemptive history and how it points to Christ. Preaching that omits this vital dimension always breeds the same kind of dull, 
hardness and spiritual decline Jesus encountered in Israel at his first advent. The church today is in the throes of a very similar uh, torpor, uh, anesthetized by the suffocating miasma of man-centered teaching and moralistic platitudes that ignore the gospel. Too many churchgoers have been fed for too long on a steady diet of topical messages, motivational talks, shallow feel-good homilies, or even thinner gruel. What is the expected result of that? Worldliness, superficiality, bad doctrine, unsanctified church members, ego-driven church leaders, and virtually every other spiritual malady that is currently crippling American evangelicalism. The only remedy, and I believe the best recipe for revival in the church, is a powerful wave of biblical preaching and biblical theology in which we recognize and proclaim Christ as the center and focus of everything that God's Word has to say. To that I say... Amen and amen, and very well spoken uh, by uh, Phil Johnson here. And he's right. Um, if you do not understand that the cross is the center, you don't understand that th- the Bible's about Jesus. It's not about you discovering your purpose. It's not about you, uh, you know, basically using it as some kind of encyclopedia of of moralistic principles that you apply to particular situations in your life so that you can earn God's favor and blessing. Um, yeah, that that's to miss the point completely. The Bible remains a closed book until you unlock it with the key of Christ's cross. Plain and simple. Now, kind of, you know, in the same vein as uh, what we just read there from um, Phil Johnson at the Pyromaniacs blog, Tulian uh, Tavigian uh, of uh, Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church, he has an interesting um, article that he posted at the Christian Post, and the headline caught my eye because this is uh, this is something that I, I think would be controversial to some, but the scriptures teach this. And uh, he, here's what the headline reads: It says, "Law without gospel leads to licentiousness. Law without gospel leads to licentiousness. You show me a church where the pastor preaches blistering, withering." Uh, you know, hellfire law, but never preaches the gospel. And I guarantee you, you scratch the surface of that congregation, you're going to find folks there that are enslaved to some of the most pernicious and vile sins. The law actually leads to licentiousness. You have to preach the gospel. You have to preach law and gospel. Now, uh, conversely, where you, where the pastor doesn't preach the law but preaches the gospel only or reduces the Bible to only gospel and avoids preaching God's law like the plague, ay, ay, ay. I mean, there you get antinomian licentiousness, and that thing is as pernicious and nasty as the other. A- anyway... <clears throat> But let me read Tulian's uh, article. He says, Tulian writes, he says, I received this letter a few weeks ago from someone I've never met. He sent it to me as a word of encouragement regarding how the message of grace has revitalized his love for God. I hesitated to post it because given the kind of things he says about my work, I didn't want to appear self-promotional. 
But what he says about the effect of grace in revitalizing his spiritual life and the inability of the law to engender what it commands is so good, I just had to share it with you. This person wrote, quote, Over the last couple of years, we have really been struggling with the preaching in our church as it has been very law-laden and borders on moralistic. After listening, um, I feel condemned with no power to overcome my lack of ability to obey the law. Over the last several months, I have found myself very spiritually depressed to the point where I had no desire to even attend church. We don't have an evening service, so we started listening to sermons as a family on Sunday evenings on the Internet. We have four children and another due on Monday. We have listened to part of your Pictures of Grace sermons on your church's website over the past few weeks, and additionally, we have been reading your blog. I just wanted to thank you for your commitment and faithfulness to the gospel of grace. Since reading your blog and listening to your sermons, it's like a fresh ocean breeze blowing through my uh, face. You rightly put the focus on the finished, completed work of Christ and point us away from ourselves. I have found myself gradually crawling out of my spiritual depression and wanting to do the things that God has called me to do. This isn't the result of more law in my life, but this is the result of more gospel. Grace is not dependent on anything, and if it is, then it wouldn't be grace. Pastors are so concerned about somehow preaching too much grace, as if that's possible, as they wrongly believe that type of preaching leads to antinomianism or licentiousness. Now, by the way, um, preaching grace without the context of the law, you you got to preach law and gospel. So, yeah, it, if you just preach gospel and no law, then the gospel doesn't have any context, and that that can lead to antinomianism and licentiousness. But anyway, he says, as they uh, they they believe as they believe that that type of preaching leads to antinomianism or licentiousness. But I can testify that the opposite is actually true. I believe preaching only the law and giving little to no gospel actually leads to antinomianism, and it does. When mainly law is preached, in my opinion, that leads to the realization that I can't follow it, so I might as well try uh, quit trying. When the remedy to the law, the gospel, is not presented, the hearer is left without any power to perform good works. Only the gospel gives the power to obey. I know what I do. I need the power to. I know what to do. I need the power to do it. The ironic thing about legalism is that. It not only doesn't make people work harder, it makes them give up. Moralism doesn't produce morality. Rather, it produces immorality. We make a big mistake when we conclude that the law is the answer to licentiousness. In fact, the law only stirs up licentiousness. People get worse, not better, when you lay down the law. To be sure, the Spirit does use the whole word in our sanctification, the law as well as the gospel. But the law and the gospel do very different things. The law reveals sin, but is powerless to remove sin. It points to righteousness, but can't produce it. It shows us what godliness is, but it cannot make us godly. As Martin Luther said, sin is not canceled by lawful living, for no person is able to live up to the law. Nothing can take away sin except for the grace of God. The law is impotent. It has no strength. It has no power. It offers us Nothing. Sinners already are powerless to obey the demands of the law, and the law offers them no assistance, absolutely none. The law, apart from the gospel, can only crush. It can't cure. Ralph Erskine uh, wrote a poem, or I think this might be from a hymn. The law could promise life to me 
if my obedience perfect be, but grace does promise life upon my Lord's obedience alone. The law says do, and life you'll win, but grace says live, for all is done. The former cannot ease my grief, the latter yields me full relief. So the law serves us by showing us how to love God and others, but we fail to do this every day. And when we fail, it is the gospel which brings comfort by reminding us that God's infinite approval of us does not depend upon our keeping of the law, but on Christ's keeping of the law for us. And guess what? This makes me want to obey him more, not less. As Spurgeon wrote, When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind and so good and so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and sought my good. Indeed, it is the kindness of the Lord that leads to repentance. Romans 2, verse 4. Fantastic, fantastic article. Absolutely 100% true. And the Luther quote, I think, is key here. Sin is not canceled by lawful living. Sin is not canceled by lawful living. No person is able to live up to the law. And that's one of the key problems in all of the sermons that we review that are bad, is that somehow the solution to your sin problem is lawful living. You just need to try harder. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And ultimately, that leads to despair and licentiousness. It cannot save you, nor can it sanctify you. Great article by Tulian there. Um, the uh, the next one I'd like to read is uh, from Albert Muller. He uh, r- recently uh, published an article in the CNN uh, Belief blog. And uh, they have a section where they ask different people to write their take. And so the question is, are evangelicals dangerous? Are evangelicals dangerous? So Albert Muller, writing for CNN, says, Here we go again. Every four years with every new presidential election cycle, public voices sound the alarm that the evangelicals are back. What is so scary about America's evangelical Christians? Just a few years ago, author Kevin Phillips told intellectual elites to run for cover, claiming that well-organized evangelicals were attempting to turn America into a theocratic state. In American Theocracy, Phillips warned of the growing influence of Bible-believing, born-again, theologically conservative voters who were determined to create a theocracy. Writer uh, Michelle Goldberg, meanwhile, has warned of a new Christian nationalism based in dominion theology. Chris Hedges topped that by calling conservative Christians American fascists. By the way, he doesn't even know what a fascist is. Anyway, and so-called new atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris claim that conservative Christians are nothing less than a threat to democracy. They prescribe atheism and secularism as the antidotes. The presidential cycle, the alarms have started earlier than usual. Ryan uh, Lizza, uh, profiling uh, Republican Michelle Bachman for The New Yorker, informed his readers that, quote, Bachman belongs to a generation of Christian conservatives whose views have been shaped by institutions tracks and leaders not commonly known to secular Americans or even to most Christians. Change just a few strategic words, and the same would be true of Barack Obama or any other presidential candidate. Every candidate is shaped 
by influences not known to all, and by institutions that other Americans might find strange. What stories like this really show is that the secular elites assume that their own institutions and leaders are normative. The New Yorker accused Bachman of being concerned with developing a Christian worldview, ignoring the fact that every thinking person operates out of some kind of worldview. The article treated statements about wifely submission to husbands and Christian influence in art as bizarre and bellicose. When Rick Perry questioned the theory of evolution, Doc Dawkins launched into full-on apoplexy, wondering about how anyone who questions evolution could be considered intelligent, even as polls indicate that a majority of Americans question evolution. Bill Keller, the executive editor of the New York Times, topped all the rest by seeming to suggest that conservative Christians should be compared to those who believe in space aliens. He complained that when it comes to the religious beliefs of our would-be presidents, we are a little squeamish about probing in too aggressively. Really? Earlier this month, comedian Penn Teller, a well-known atheist, wrote a very serious op-ed piece complaining of the political influence of bug-nut Christians in the pages of the Los Angeles Times, no less. Detect a pattern here? By now, this, probably being this is probably being read as a complaint against secular elites and prominent voices in the mainstream media. Well, it's not. If evangelicals intend to engage in public issues and cultural concerns, we have to be ready for the scrutiny and discomfort that comes with disagreement over matters of importance. We have to risk being misunderstood, even misrepresented, if we intend to say anything worth hearing. Are evangelicals dangerous? Well, certainly not in the sense that more uh, secular voices warn. The vast majority of evangelicals are not attempting to create a theocracy or to oppose democracy. To the contrary, evangelicals are dangerous to the secularist vision of this nation and its future precisely because we are committed to participatory democracy. As Christians committed to the Bible, evangelicals have learned to advocate on behalf of the unborn, believing that every single human being at every stage of development is made in God's image. Evangelicals worry about the fate of marriage and the family, believing that the pattern for human relatedness set out in Scripture will lead to the greatest human flourishing. We are deeply concerned about a host of moral and cultural issues, from how to address poverty to how to be good stewards of the earth, and on some of these there is a fairly high degree of disagreement even among us. Above all, evangelicals are those who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and are most concerned about telling others about Jesus. Most of America's evangelical Christians are busy raising their children, working to support their families, and investing energy in their local churches. But over recent decades, evangelical Christians have learned that the gospel has implications for every dimension of life, including our political responsibility. We're dangerous only to those who want more secular voices to have a virtual monopoly in public life. Well said. Well said by Dr. Mueller, worth passing along, and I you know, have the deepest respect for him. All right. Last uh, story before we go into our second break and then come out uh, in hour number two for our sermon review is a Christian Post story written by Audrey Barrick. The headline reads, Georgia pastor preaches to help Christians avoid wasting their lives. Georgia pastor preaches to help Christians avoid wasting their lives. It's a result of this article that uh, we will be doing our sermon review today um, on this pastor. 
Yeah, you, let me read the story. Audrey Barrick writes, she says, So many Christians are wasting their lives despite the great plan that God has for them, says one Georgia pastor. And what's bringing them down are stupid human tricks. Uh-huh, sounds like an episode of, um, well, one of those late-night comedy programs. Anyways, quote, stupid human tricks, things people do that wreck their lives, Brian Bloy, lead pastor of West Ridge Church, defined to his congregation. Bloy kicked off a sermon series with that title last month and is continuing the series on Sunday. He's hoping Christians will live to their God-given potential rather than let it all go to waste. He doesn't want people to come to the end of their lives asking what could have been. Quote, what a sad thing for anyone to be created by God to have so much potential and yet miss out and waste a life because of one foolish choice after another. Bloy preached using the biblical character Samson as a case study. In his most recent sermon, the pastor pointed out that an undisciplined life was what led to Samson's downfall. Some of the signs indicating an undisciplined spiritual life include compromising prayerlessness and not spending time with God on a daily basis. Stop compromising, Bloy told the megachurch, which meets in three locations. As a Christian, you have three enemies, the flesh, the world, and Satan, and these three enemies are constantly warring against you to keep you from living out God's purposes for your life. They are going to try to derail your potential. He also noted that partial obedience to God is always complete disobedience. Well, then he's completely disobedient. Notice the emphasis on the law and not the gospel. If your life is truly going to count for God's glory, here's what you've got to do. You must cultivate your spiritual life. If your life is truly going to count for God's glory, here's what you've got to do. No mention of Jesus there. Daily intimacy with God's it, with God in word and prayer has got to be part of the deal, Bloy stressed. You have the God who created the universe, who is on your side. You are a mighty tool in God's hands if you will cultivate that relationship with him. There's nothing you can't do if God is on your side. So that's yeah, I read this uh I read this after it was posted um you know over the weekend and uh, knew that I needed to um <clears throat> Put this into the sermon rotation mix. So we will be reviewing this uh, case study regarding Samson in hour number two. And we're going to take a look to see if if this guy is preaching the gospel, if he understands the gospel, or if he's preaching moralism. Preaching the law as if it somehow has the power to create in you the desire or, or even give you the power to obey it. Yeah, so, um, yeah, you're not going to want to miss that. Now, uh, we're up on our second break. If you would like to email me regarding anything that you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. be going down to Georgia. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via West Ridge Church, Dallas, Georgia. The name of the sermon, Stupid Human Tricks, A Life Well Wasted. Pastor Brian Bloy presiding. Now, one of the things we're going to be doing here is I'm going to spend some time walking through pretty much all of the chapters in the book of Judges regarding Samson. In fact, if you want to get your Bible open, you put your finger somewhere around Judges 14, 15-ish. And uh, you might have to go backwards or forward a page. I'm just doing this from memory. But remember what I said, you can't understand the scriptures without unlocking the scriptures using the key. The key is the cross of Christ. All human beings, you, me, Abraham, Moses, Samson, were saved by grace through faith as a gift. No one earns their salvation, not one, and the one who tries, well, fails. So we don't get to understand the story of Samson unless we first understand that this is primarily a story that teaches us something about Christ, the God who is merciful, the God who is forgiving, the God who declares righteous those who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. Yeah, you're not gonna you're not gonna get the story until you get that. All right, so we're gonna listen to a little bit of the sermon first, and then we'll get into our Bible reading so that we can see what's going on here. So, uh, without any further ado, let me kill the music. Here is "Stupid Human Tricks: A Life Well Wasted" by Brian Bloy, Westridge Church, Dallas, Georgia. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a question, and, and, and we're going to start this, this stupid human trick series off this way. How many of you, honestly, you, you, you can look back and go, you know, I, I've done some stupid things in my life. Anybody? Okay, the rest of you that are not raising your hand, I, I've said this before, you're just lying. I mean, that's all there is to it. So um, we've all done them. And, and I'll tell you how this kind of worked out for me of what I'm about to share with you. Last night before uh, I went to bed, I, I was asking Amy, we were, we were actually laying in bed, and I said, I want, Amy, I want to share a story with with our, our church tomorrow of something that I've done that's just stupid. And, um, and you know, we didn't really know each other in college, but, you know, she's been with me for, you know, nearly almost 20 years now. And, and so I said, let's give me some stories. Give me just a story that stands out to you. So she started sharing um, stupid things that I've done. And, and I finally fell asleep. Well, when my alarm clock went off this morning, she was, she was still sharing. And, um, and she said, did you get one out of that? And I said, what? Well, one of one, one, there's so many, and I was known in college and, and even now for practical jokes. And, but one, one story kind of stands out maybe more than others. And uh, just remember when I tell you this, I was in college. I was in college, okay? Um, I graduated from Liberty University in Lynchburg, Virginia. I finished up my undergrad work in December of 87. And, and um, the church that, that was, is, was connected to our university, which I actually was a staff member for six years, it's a church called Thomas Road Baptist Church, and I used to work for Jerry Falwell. And when I tell people that, I either pucker or duck. I mean, that's, there's no two ways about that. Um, but the, the, our church was really the founding church of what some of you have been to before called a living Christmas tree. Anybody who have been to a living Christmas tree before? Uh, it's like a huge steel structure covered in garlands. It's a light display like you've never seen. They bring in live animals. I mean, it's quite the Christmas extravaganza. And Thomas Road started this back in the 70s. And I'm telling you, people come from all over the, the, the world to see this, like a whole two-week-long deal. People charter bus, buses. They come from all over the, the southeast and the north to, to be part of this thing. And so it, it's, a, it's a big, big deal, and they still do it. Now they have two living Christmas trees side by side. They're about four stories. And, I mean, hundreds of people sing in these things, and they do big drama and the whole thing. And so my friends and I, knowing that we were getting ready to, to graduate Liberty, we thought, you know, it would be fun to mess with the tree a little bit. And so... We, uh, we, I had some friends, uh, a friend actually who had a key to let us in under the tree. And so back in 87, um, and I, I don't know how many of you women still wear pantyhose, but pantyhose were a big deal back then. And I don't know if they still are, but, um, we thought, wouldn't it be fun? If we went in there and just started just grabbing pantyhose of some of the women who were singing in the tree and see how far we can pull these things. And so we grab hold and we just sat there. We just pull, pull, pull. I mean, we were like, what? because they can't see us. They're in a tree that's about four stories high. We're reaching. Well, then we thought in the next performance, well, let's see if we can get some shoes off of some of these people. So we went in there and I mean, we grab a leg and we're, we're grabbing shoes. I mean, people are giving us a ride, you know? I mean, we had a pile of shoes in the choir room. We'd only take one shoe. They had to do the whole, whole living Christmas tree performance with one shoe on. We had a, a pile of shoes about this high in the choir room after this whole thing was done. And we thought it, it just kept building and building. It was just stupid human tricks at its finest. And so we finally thought, okay, we went over to the mall and, and um, we, we went into the mall. And, and I won't tell you what store I went into, but I bought this couple cans of this stuff called Pew, which if I were just to go, would clear this whole front section out. Okay. Some of you are going, why are you telling us this? Just stupid stuff. Okay. And, and so we thought, wouldn't it be fun if we just stood under the tree like this and just unloaded these two cans, which is what we did. And, um, and the smell went up the tree and, um, and then permeated out onto the stage and then five rows, six rows into the crowd. And we stood in the back of the church and just watched. I was laughing so hard I couldn't stand up. People were singing like this at the tree. People were leaving the tree. 
Um, I mean, people that were singing were leaving. They were leaving. We were watching them get out. It, they were sick. Um, it, the smell it cleared out most of the people in the, front, the first few rows. And, and I, you know, the choir director kind of knew because of my reputation and my friends that we were somewhat involved. And so we're in a restaurant after this. And, and we were actually sitting with Dr. Fowle and his family. And um, he came in and he was furious, yelling and screaming at us and the whole thing. And Dr. Fowle was laughing. He thought it was a blast. And so um, he's going to find out that we did it. We're going to get kicked out of school and, and, and the whole deal. And now today, um, today and, and from that day till now, there is always an armed guard under the living Christmas tree to prevent people like me from doing stupid human tricks. So anyways, I, I thought, you know, and I'm sure you could all stand up here and tell your stories, but that's mine of just, I think, out of all the stories that we talked about last night, the craziest one, maybe, um, you know, the, when, I, when, when my boys were real young, we used to say, you know, we don't say the word stupid. And, and uh, now that's the least of our problems. But um, the word stupid, if you define it, um, the word stupid really means given to foolish decisions or acts. Given to fool, It's acting in an intelligent or careless manner. And this morning we're in a brand new series um, called Stupid Human Tricks. And we're going to be talking over the next several weeks of just about things that people do that wreck their lives. Stupid human tricks are things that, that we do that create havoc in our lives or, or they, they, they're foolish decisions that we make that are just damaging or they're choices that, that, that we make that have, that, that just oftentimes when we do them, we don't count the cost of how these choices are going to end up impacting or hurting those around us. And so in this series that we're going to be in, we're going to identify some of just the stupid, foolish decisions that people make that have great potential to wreck their lives. And we're also going to be talking about how we can avoid some of these things so that, so that we can live lives of real meaning and real purpose and we can live out our full potential rather than, than lives that are, that, are, that are full of tough consequences because we've made so many foolish decisions and, and now we're struggling with some of the results of those things. Now, as, as, our case, as, as a case study for our series, Stupid Human Tricks, um, over the next several weeks, we're going to be taking a very detailed look at a guy in the Bible who um, you, you could kind of look and just say, this is a guy who had everything you would want in life. Just set up for success, set up with great potential, great plan, great purpose for his life. But he basically threw it all away because of a series of stupid decisions. Some of you may be going, who are we going to be talking about? Samson. Over the next seven, eight weeks or so, we're going to be talking about the life of Samson. Now, Samson was this guy that from the time that he was born, I mean, this guy truly had it all. He was handsome. He was incredibly strong. He was smart. He had great leader, leadership potential. Um, but, but more than all of the things that he had, he had purpose. When God brought him into the world, he created him. He brought him into the world for a very specific purpose. He was going to be a mighty deliverer for the nation of Israel. However, because of a series of, of stupid, foolish decisions, he missed out on his purpose that God had created for, created for him to fulfill. Okay, so we're going to stop here for a second. Just kind of take a little bit of stock and inventory, okay? Basically, the purpose of this sermon uh, series, and in, in, in actually, is this: that uh, the premise is that the choices that you make are damaging and can wreck your life, and the goal is to make it so that you don't make stupid decisions that will mess up your life, so that your life will have meaning and purpose. 
Now, this is the notes that I'm taking. Now, according to Brian, Samson is somebody who's held up as a model of somebody in Scripture who was born with a purpose but never achieved that purpose because of stupid decisions that he made. Okay? That's the basic setup for this. Now, I'm going to challenge it, and I'm going to challenge it this way. Scriptures make it perfectly clear that Samson achieved his purpose and objective. Okay? And uh, in order to prove this, we're going to need to spend some time in the biblical text. So before Brian gets to it, we're going to cut him off, and we're going to spend some time in the biblical text. And keep in mind, we're going to be looking for Jesus here. Where is Jesus in this text, and how how do we understand what's going on? Because keep in mind, scriptures make it clear that all human beings, if they're truly saved, okay, uh, then their salvation is by grace through faith, the same way Abraham's salvation was by grace through faith. So we're we're gonna you know we're gonna see if that plays out in the story of Samson as well. So we're gonna be in Judges chapter thirteen, Judges chapter thirteen to begin with, and we're gonna let the biblical text basically answer the question: Did Samson fulfill? the purpose for which he was born. Judges chapter 13, verse 1. At, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Okay? Now, if you're familiar with the book of Judges, what happens is, is that book of Judges begins with the death of Joshua and the people of Israel basically going to their allotted inheritance lands and properties given to each of the different tribes, with the exception of the Levites. The Levites, uh, God was their inheritance, and the rest of the tribes were to care for them via the tithe. But uh, And so everybody goes to their distinctive places, and what happens is, is that the next generations, well, they begin worshiping idols. And as a result of this, as a result of worshiping idols, God sells them into slavery again. Little mini slaveries, if you would. You know, to, you know, like the, the, the sons of Edom, the, the, the Moabites, and, and others. And in this particular case, this chapter begins with this statement. The people of Israel did, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Read into that idolatry. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Verse 2, there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. The angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and you have no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or drink no, or no strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be called a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So he's going to begin to save Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And immediately you should see a parallel here. The parallel is between Samson and and none other than John the Baptist, forerunner of Christ, okay? This whole Nazarite, no strong drink, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, John the Baptist, same thing, okay? So 
There's a, there's a parallel here in the New Testament that points us, it takes us right into the story of Christ. Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not answer him uh, where he was from and where he did he, and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child is a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Okay, so again, keep in mind, the purpose here is that he is going to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. This is his, this is his purpose, if you would. So then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day, he's appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. What should that remind you of? I am. I am. Hmm, here's Jesus right here. How do we know? Jesus uses this very name for himself in John chapter 8. Before Abraham was, I am. This is the very name used by the angel of the Lord. This is, you can think, pre-incarnate Christ. When he appeared to Moses in the burning bush. What is your name? Who shall I say sent me? I am has sent you. That I am is his name, right? So, so behold, the man came to me the other day. He's appeared to me. Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life? What is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine, nor strong drink, or eat any unclean thing, all that I commanded her to observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that we, so that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders, and Manoah and his wife were watching, and when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord, and Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. And he's right. He has. But his wife said to him, Well, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us these things as these. 
So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. So, so here's the question I have. Did Samson really not achieve his purpose? Is that what the text teaches us? That here God himself appears to Manoah and his wife. This is Jesus, pre-incarnate. That goes through all the, the rigmarole and wouldn't you know it, what, what, what Jesus wanted to have accomplished in Samson's life wasn't accomplished. Well, remember what Jesus said. He said that he that Samson was going to begin to set basically be the one who works to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. That's his mission. Okay, next chapter. So Samson, he's now older. He's he's of marriageable age. Samson went down to Timnah. At Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now remember, Samson, his job is to begin to save Israel from the Philistines, whom God sold them into slavery to for their idolatry. So Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. So, aha! God himself is behind Samson's desire for this Philistine girl. Got it? That's what the text says. So then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and she was right in Samson's eyes. Now, I'm going to point something out here. It says, Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Okay? That's all we know. It doesn't say anything about Samson drinking wine. Or anything, or doing anything against his Nazarite vow up to this point, but what happens? This lion comes upon him, and the spirit of the Lord rushes upon Samson, and he tears the lion apart. Okay. After some days, he returned to take her. This is his wife, and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion, and behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion, and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went, and he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Which technically, at this point, is, you know, we got some problems. He's ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, but God doesn't seem to, whatever reason, make, you know, make this an issue. So it was, because, you know, now, so 
this whole wedding thing, God is the one who's who's behind it all because he's trying to basically pick a fight with the Philistines. That's what's going on. He, this is what Samson's up to. So his father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you have to give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you in your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? Notice the wickedness and evil of the Philistines here. They are going to murder, murder this woman and this woman's family. Look at the murderous threats coming out here. This is deeply serious and shows us the wickedness of the Philistines. So Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You've put a riddle to my people. Notice her heart's with her people. And you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And I and shall I tell you? So she wept before him for seven days that the feast lasted, and on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard, and she told the riddle to her people. All the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? So then he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And then watch what happens. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. And he went out to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. Wow. So his... His companion gets his wife, again, showing the wickedness and evil of the Philistines. So God sends his spirit upon Samson, and Samson begins basically judging and punishing the Philistines through Samson. So did not the angel of the Lord say, that the mission of Samson was to begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So here we've got Samson at this point full on in, in the mission and purpose to which God has called him to. Next chapter, chapter 15. After some days at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber. But her father would not allow him to go in. And her father said, I really thought that you had utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. 
So Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches, and he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of the tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. Then the Philistines asked, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. Notice again the wickedness of the Philistines. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. It's horrible. Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit. And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock of Atom. So it sounds to me like he's totally fulfilling the purpose to which he was born. So then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson and to do to him what he did to us. So then 3,000 men of Judah went down to the cleft, the rock of Atom, and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Now here's the deal. Why was uh, Israel sold into the, you know, under the rulership of the Philistines? Because of their evil and their wickedness. Samson is going to be the means by which God sets them free from the rule and oppression of the Philistines. And here Judah is acting as their agents. Rather than rallying behind Samson, the way Israel rallied behind men like Gideon and others, at this point they're, they're just going to hand him over because, oh no, Samson has made us a stench in the eyes of the Philistines. Well, that's exactly what God wanted him to do, Right? So then 3,000 men of Judah went down, the cleft of rock, and said, Do you not know the Philistines rule over us? And then, what is this that you have done? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, Well, we've come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. So then Samson said to them, Well, swear to me that you won't attack me yourselves. They said to him, No. No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We, we will surely not kill you. So they bound him with new ropes and brought him from the rock. Then he came to Lehi, and the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax, and, and that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off of his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a 1,000 men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And at that place, in it, that was called Ramath-Lehi. And Samson was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, 
His spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of the place was En Hachor, that is, that is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. 20 years. So remember what the angel of the Lord said. Remember what Jesus said, okay? Here's what Jesus said, going back to chapter 13. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink. Eat nothing unclean, for behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And here, at the tail end of chapter 15, we've got Samson literally killing a thousand Philistines and him praising God, basically saying that God has brought about a great salvation for his people Israel through the hands of his servant Samson. And that's exactly the the truth. And he judged Israel in the days of the Phil in the days of the Philistines twenty years. Now, if we were to stop the story right there, um, would you think that Samson, well, didn't fulfill the purpose to which God had created him? Like, not at all. At this point, what can you really, truly put your finger on as Samson being, you know, some kind of guy who has made some dumb mistakes that have kept him from, well, living God's purpose for his life? Or the potential that he had? Nothing. There's nothing. At this point, it's pretty clear Samson has done everything that God has called him into the world to do. Right? And it wasn't wasn't because Samson earned the right to do those things. Samson was called into existence before he even did anything right or wrong to do what God had called him to do. And Samson, being a sinner like you and like me, like Moses and like and like Israel and like Isaac and like Noah and like Adam, all of the guys, he's a sinner just like all of them. And like all of them, he's saved by his faith and trust in the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, whom many ways the story of Samson points us to because of the parallels between Samson in the early part of his life to John the Baptist. The parallels are unmistakable. So now we come to chapter 16, and things go bad here. And there's a reason why things go bad here. Samson at this point, having you know judged Israel for 20 years, okay, he, um, he commits a grievous sin. Rather than continuing to trust in the Lord, you can almost make the case that Samson here is trusting in himself. In a way, taking you know God's mercy and what God has done in his life for granted and doing something that is horrible, committing adultery. We read, Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. So now the story changes. Now Samson, like David and others, has committed a grievous sin. Now, the text continues. 
the Gazites were told, Samson has come here, and they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. At midnight he rose and took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts and pulled them apart, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and he carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. Wow. So God continues to give him miraculous strength despite his terrible sin. Now, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him, and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's a lot of money. That is a lot of money. So at this point, um, Delilah's love of money <laughs> is just as bad as um, Samson's love of women. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound so that one can subdue you. Yeah, that money's talking. <laughs> Who needs Samson? 1,100 pieces of silver from each of these Philistine lords? Hmm. So Samson said to her, Well, if, if they bind me with fr uh, seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lord of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in the inner chamber, and she had said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson, but he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax when it touches the fire, so the secret of his strength was not known. Yeah, the, the whole situation is just, wow, crazy. Number one, it's obvious that Delilah has it out for him and that she cares more about the money she's going to be offered are given on the accomplishment of this mission, then she cares about this man who, well, apparently has fallen head over heels for her. But at the same time, Samson here is, um, you know, we've already know that he's an adulterer. We've got some, there's some serious stuff going on here, and he's despising the gift that God has given him. He's despising the gift that God has given him. and And at this point, really foolishly, um well whittling it away despising it um not really honoring it seeing it for what it truly is this holy gift that he'd been given then delilah said to samson behold you have mocked me and told me lies Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, Well, if they bind me with new ropes that have never not been used, then, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And all the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. So then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with a pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Notice he's getting closer and closer to the truth here. 
So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he woke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And then she said to him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? Well, her heart is not with him. You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been, given, I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man." When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles, and, gr and he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god. For they said, Our god has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country who has killed many of us. And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison, and he entertained them. They made him stand between the pillars, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, Let me feel the pillars on which the house rests, that I might lean against them. Now the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there, and on the roof there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. Then Samson called to the Lord, and he said, O Lord God, please remember me, and please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. Now I'm going to point something out here. The imagery is stark. Samson was betrayed for pieces of silver. You catching the theme here? Now, unlike Jesus, Samson was guilty as sin. But notice here. He was betrayed by someone he loved for silver of all things, just like Jesus was betrayed 
for silver, pieces of silver. And at this point, Samson is going to sacrifice himself, and through his sacrifice, he is going to save God's people, Israel. Even the imagery of him pushing the two pillars with his outstretched hands conjures up in your mind the picture of Christ hanging dead on the cross. So at this point, you can almost say that that Samson is playing the role of the martyr in the truest sense the way Christ did. And God is merciful to Samson, and he hears him, and he answers his prayer. And notice the humbleness of his prayer. Oh, Lord, please remember me. Very different, very different attitude. That is the prayer of a penitent sinner. Oh, Lord, please remember me. This is a different man than the man who was tempting fate and basically running roughshod with the gift that God had given him, squandering it the way he did and the sins that he committed. He knows that he's guilty before God. Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistine for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against him, his right hand on the one, his left hand on the other, and Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. Look at the salvation that God brought about through the death of Samson. Then his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtaol in the tomb of Manoah his father. He had judged Israel. 20 years. This is a story of mercy. This is a story of forgiveness. This is a story of salvation by death. And all of this points us to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who of us can say that we are righteous in our own righteousness? Who of us can say, well, look at me, I am more obedient than Samson. I can't. And neither can you. Samson, just like all the other characters in the Old Testament, historical characters, men and women who truly lived. For our God works in time and history. Every one of them were sinners. Every one of them. Moses was a murderer. David, an adulterer and a murderer. You look at Abraham, liar like you wouldn't believe. Isaac, his son, same thing. Joseph, same thing. Over and again, we're confronted in Scripture with folks who, just like you and just like me, were born dead in trespasses and sins. But God chose for himself a holy people. And he saved them. 
from slavery. And he saves you and I from slavery, slavery to sin, death, and the devil. By Christ's death on the cross, he destroys our enemies and releases us and works a great salvation, much the same way that Samson's death pictures it. When Samson died, he took out the Philistines. When Christ died, he took out Satan himself. You see, the story of Samson's really about Christ. And it's a story of mercy. Did Samson earn the right to hear, have God hear him? No. But our Lord and Savior tells us, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And all who call upon the Lord will be saved. And here's Samson. Getting what he deserved, by the way. Samson the adulterer. Samson the man who took the gift of God, this holy gift, and squandered it by his own adulterous sin, by his own foolishness, and treating it with contempt. But God humbled him. He was brought to repentance. And his prayer sounds a lot like that prayer given by the tax collector in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Samson calls the Lord, says, O oh Lord, please remember me, knowing that he doesn't deserve to be remembered by God. And does God say, Nope, you screwed it up this time. You know, here, you know, I, I visited your mom and dad before you were ever born, told them that, you know, you had a purpose and a mission and you've, you didn't even come close to accomplishing it. Can't believe the way you've done this. Unbelievable. Talk about a waste. No. He judged Israel for 20 years. For 20 years he judged Israel. He delivered Israel by killing a thousand Philistines with a jawbone. And his mission was to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. And his death points us to the cross of Christ, who sacrificially died for us on the cross. So here, Samson, in his death, destroys 3,000 Philistines, not just any Philistines, the lords and the nobles, literally cutting off the head of the Philistines, if you would. Dies in the process. That's what the story is about. It's about Christ. It's about God rescuing and saving you, not because of anything you've done, but because God is merciful. O oh Lord, if you kept a record of wrongs, who can stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. That's what the story is about. Salvation, forgiveness, and mercy. Even to one as undeserving of such things as Samson. We continue. Um, here's a guy that had the whole world right at his fingertips, but instead has become for us a case study of a guy who basically wasted his life. And with that said, I think what a sad thing to be said about anybody. Such potential. What a plan. What a purpose. I mean, man, 
but wasted their life, missed out on the whole thing. What a sad thing for anyone to be created by God with, 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 with all the potential in the world, to have so much potential and yet miss out and waste a life because of one foolish choice after the next. Um, Brian, it's not what the text says at all. In fact, the last thing we hear about Samson in chapter 16, verse 31, is that he had judged Israel for 20 years. He didn't miss his purpose at all. He fully achieved the purpose to which God called him into the world in the first place. And so, as an intro to our series, here's what I want to do. I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to turn to the book of Judges. Judges is in the Old Testament. It follows uh, the book of Joshua. And in the book of Judges, you're going to basically see that Judges is kind of like, it sounds almost like a broken record. It just keeps repeating the same cycle. The cycle of sin, the cycle of captivity, the cycle of, of, of this nation crying out to God and then being delivered by God. And, and you just see this over and over and over again. And Judges tells, starts off by telling us that Joshua has died. The great leader Joshua, the one who took over from Moses, he has died, but there is not a strong man of God to now lead the nation of Israel. And in chapter 2, verse 10, here's what it says. It basically gives us a good summary of what was happening at, happening at the time. It says, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up, who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Now, what is happening here? Well, the generation that followed Joshua, that, that walked alongside of him, the generation that crossed, the Red, that crossed over the Jordan River, the generation that marched around the walls of Jericho, the generation that, 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 that entered into God's promised land, the generation that stood with Joshua and said, for, you know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. They forgot their most important responsibility, which was to pass down their faith to their children. And so as a result of, of this, this new generation that we see that is now in the book of Judges, they have turned away from God, they have fallen into idolatry, which has now led them right back to where they started years and years and years ago. Remember they were slaves in Egypt, Moses led them out, and now Joshua's led them into the promised land. Here they are now into slavery. God has allowed them to be defeated and to be enslaved now to the Canaanites and to the Philistines. And here we are in Joshua, Judges chapter 3 verse 9, and it says, But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother who saved them. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. Now in chapter 3, we're introduced to the period of the judges. And over the next several chapters, we, we, again, we see this cycle of dysfunction. Israel would do evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God would not send a king. Instead, what he would send would be a judge. And we see Ehud, and we see Shamgar, and we see Deborah, and we see Gideon, and we see Jephthah, and we see all of these other judges, a host of other judges, who brought deliverance, they brought freedom to the Israelites for about a 40-year period. And then the nation would fall right back into the same pattern of disobedience, and then captivity, and then crying out, and then God would come along and deliver them once again. Now I want you to flip over several chapters to chapter 13, because here's where we start off the story of Samson. In verse 1, it says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, the people here, they haven't even cried out yet. 
But he, but God, knowing the pattern, knowing how these people roll, he anticipates it in his sovereignty and he begins to work ahead of them. And in verse 2, he brings a deliverer. He brings a miracle child. And it says, A certain man of Zorah named Manoah from the clan of the Danites had a wife who was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. Now see to it that you drink no wine or other fermented drink, and that you do not eat anything unclean, because you will conceive and give birth to a son. No razor may be used on his head, because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Set apart to God from birth, and he will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Now, Manoah... When he hears this story from his wife, he doesn't believe it. He doesn't believe that it's going to happen. And so he asks for confirmation. And so God reiterates truth to him that, yes, a son is going to be born, and he's going to be a Nazarite, and he is going to be a deliverer for Israel. Now, a true Nazarite, true Nazarite kept three promises. They would, first of all, they would not eat grapes or drink wine. Anything that was fermented, anything that could be fermented, found in a vineyard, they, could, they were not allowed to, to, to consume that. They were also not allowed to touch anything that was dead. Whether it was an animal, whether it was a, a person or whatever, they were not allowed to touch anything dead and they could never cut their hair. Boy, girl, they could never cut their hair. The purpose was to be completely set apart from culture, to be different enough to be able to make a difference for God. Now, look at verse 24. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson and he grew and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him while he was in um, Mahana, Dan, between Zorah and Eshtaol. God's Spirit comes over Samson and blesses him with this supernatural strength for the purpose of delivering the nation of Israel. Now, when I was growing up in Sunday school, Samson, to me, was a supernatural, almost comic book type superhero. I mean, he was like Spider-Man, Superman, Captain America, Thor, all wrapped up into one. He was better than all of them because he was in the Bible. And I don't know how many of you ever um, grew up with flannel graph. You, anybody remember flannel graph if you grew up in Sunday school? When, when they would put Samson up on the flannel graph board, he was the, he was the guy with the bulging muscles. I mean, he was the guy, you know, you just looked and went, man, that dude, he's a beast. I mean, Samson, you know, and he always would be, you know, anytime somebody had a big dog that had a lot of muscles, it seemed like they were naming that dog Samson, okay? Because Samson to me, even a young child, Samson represented power and strength. Samson was also a man of incredible weakness and foolishness. And so this morning, I want to walk with you through some of the foolish things that Samson did throughout his life that basically caused him to miss out on his purpose and to tragically waste his life. Okay, again, I have to challenge this. The text nowhere says that Samson missed his purpose. In fact, everything I read from the story says that he fully achieved the purpose to which God called him. The purpose of setting Israel free from the Philistines. Not only that, his purpose was fully realized in his sacrificial death. That points us to the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. This morning I'm going to be doing what um, I'm going to be calling an overview of stupidity. We're going to take a big pick look at Samson's life, and then we're going to later through the series, we're going to drill down into it. And you say, why are we doing this? Well, unfortunately, 
the same stupid human tricks that caused Samson to be our case study for this series is still being played out by so many of us today. Born with a great plan, with a purpose, so much potential, but tragically throwing it away. And not just maybe in this building, but people all around us, people that you know, people that maybe live in your house. We're going to look at Samson's life of foolishness. And the very first thing that we're going to look at this morning is his foolish engagement. Chapter 14, verse 1, it says, Samson went down to Timnah and he saw there a young Philistine woman. Samson is going down to this place. He sees this gorgeous girl and his heart hops through his chest. And, and, and the problem is that with this girl is that she's not an Israelite. The Israelites were not allowed to marry people outside of their own race. But he sees this woman. He's got the hots for her. She's not a godly woman. And his parents protest. But Samson says to his dad, Dad, you've got to get this girl from me because she's smoking hot. You've got to have this girl. And apparently dad caves to his request. Now in Judges 14.5, on his way to ask for her hand in marriage, Samson turns into a vineyard. Not a smart move. Remember? Okay, I want to point something out. He skipped a verse. He did not read or even mention or make any fact that the Judges 14.4 exists. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So this whole story hinges how you, if you're going to handle it rightly, you've got to throw Judges 14.4 into the mix because Judges 14.4 shows that Samson's hots for this girl was God's doing because God was going to use Samson to judge the Philistines and to set Israel free and work a salvation in Israel by the hand of Samson against the Philistines. That's why he raised him up. He's a Nazarite, all right? He's not supposed to eat or, or to drink anything from a grapevine. And while he's in the vineyard, what happens? A lion attacks him. Almost as if, as if God, God is warning him to stay away from the vineyard. Stay away from the Philistine girl. I don't know how many of you have ever walked into a bad situation. And now, his interpretation of why the lion attacked him, it's not there in the text. This is eisegesis. So he takes out verse 14, doesn't mention it. And now he eisegetes, puts something into the text that isn't there. The text does not say that the Spirit of the Lord came upon the lion to keep him from eating anything in that vineyard. It doesn't say anything of the sort. And you just know, I mean, while you're walking into it, God is, he is, he is speaking to you. He's putting warning signs all over you. He is showing you that you're about ready to really blow it. And yet you just kind of go, God, I got this. This is what Samson's doing. God, I got this. All right. But God gives him grace at this moment. And in a display of superhuman strength, Samson kills the lion with his bare hands. I mean, literally rips, the, I mean, tears the lion in half. Now, I want to tell you what. If I had just killed a lion this morning, I would be telling you about this. I'd, I'd be bragging. All right? I mean, I'm just going to tell you. I just killed a lion out there, tore him in half. Samson, he doesn't tell anybody. He doesn't tell his parents about the fact that he just killed a lion. You say, why? Why wouldn't he tell? Well, because he wasn't supposed to be in the vineyard. Well, the text doesn't say that. Later, he returns back to the vineyard. He wants to kind of check out the lion carcass. And when he gets there, he sees that there are a bunch of bees that have, 
have built a, a nest and there's honey inside. So he scoops his hand down in there and, and takes a bunch of honey to his parents. Now, I want you to understand he's a Nazarite. Remember, he's a Nazarite. He's not supposed to be messing around in a vineyard and he's not supposed to touch anything dead. He has now violated two-thirds of his Nazarite vow. Then we see this foolish little riddle. Samson he has, falls in love with this girl and he's having a bachelor party. And at the bachelor party, he gives a little riddle and he makes a bet. He says, if you can figure out my riddle, he's got 30 guys around him, all Philistines. He says, I'll give you 30 pairs of underwear and 30 pairs of clothing. And here he throws the riddle out. He says, riddle me this. Judges 14, 14. Out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. Now, what's he talking about here? He's talking about a lion. He's talking about a, the, the bees. I mean, the whole deal. The man can't figure it out. They're scratching their head. They don't know what's going on. He's got this riddle. They, they got some new clothing on the line. And so they threaten his fiance. And they say, listen, if you don't get him to tell you this riddle, we're going to burn you. We're going to burn your father. We're going, to, we're going to burn your house down. And Samson's fiance begs with him, pleads with him, and he refuses. He says, listen, I haven't even told my parents that I killed a lion, that I wore this honey. I, why would I tell you this? And she just keeps pressing him until daily she begins to cry. She cries. Now, remember, this is their wedding celebration. Their, their first night together is just around the corner, and his soon-to-be wife is an emotional wreck. And so he tells her, and she then tells the men. And Samson is tricked into you know, having to now make good on his bet. And he is furious. He's enraged. And we see this, this foolish engagement and this foolish riddle. And now we see this display of his foolish temper. And in verse 19... Okay. Uh, <clears throat> foolish temper. Ver again, Judges 14.4 makes it clear... This whole incident was at the hand of the Lord. Again, let me read it for you. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. This isn't about Samson having a foolish temper. This is about God wanting to pick a fight with the Philistines to deliver Israel from their hands through his servant Samson. It says, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon him in power, and he went down to Ashkelon, and he struck down 30 of their men, and he stripped them of their belongings, and he gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he went up to his father's house. Now, check this out. And Samson's wife was given to the friend who had attended him at his wedding. Now, this guy, Samson, has got some problems here. While Samson is burning with anger, he kills 30 men, strips them of their underclothes, strips them of their clothing, takes it, pays off of his bet. And when he returns to his father-in-law's house, his soon-to-be wife has now or has married his best man. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd be ticked off. Okay? And he is. And so his payback, here's what he does. He catches 30 foxes. 30 foxes. Now, I don't 300. I don't know how he did this, all right? But he ties their tails together. And he takes a torch and he sticks them between the tails, all right? And he then runs these foxes through the Philistines' fields, burning up their fields, burning up their orchards, and burning up their vineyards. And when the Philistines find out what had happened and who had done this, they come after him. 
And in Judges 15, 8, here's what it says. He attacked them, Samson, viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. Now, the Philistines, they're out for revenge. They gather an army together. They march into Israel to catch, and they, to catch him and to kill him. Now, Samson, he's not just dealing with the results of his own actions. Now he's put his whole nation at risk. That's, uh, well, wait a second. He put his whole nation at risk. I mean, seriously, you, you, it's as if, Brian, you totally on purpose left out the passages that talk about the fact that the Philistines ruling over the Israelites was a result of their evil and their idolatry and that Samson was the means by which God intended to rescue Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Yeah, I mean, well, now we've got his foolish anger, and now he's killed all these people. Now he's put his whole nation at risk. Uh, This is unbelievable. That's what selfish anger can do sometimes. That's That's what stupid choices do. Sometimes they endanger the ones that we're supposed to be loving and protecting and taking care of. And the leaders of Israel, they come together and they strike a deal with the Philistines, and they agree to capture Samson because they realize he's put them in a bad spot. And they agree to extradite him back to the Philistines. And so 3,000 troops surround him. And Samson says, okay, I'll go, just don't kill me. I'll go, just don't kill me. And so they bind him with rope and they lead him to the enemy. Verse 14. As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting, the spirit of the Lord came on him in power. The ropes on his, hand, on his arms became like charred flax. The bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it. And he struck down a thousand men. Samson acts so selfishly, and yet God uses his selfishness to accomplish his purpose. Um, really, he was acting selfishly. His wife was given to his best man. That, that's not acting selfishly. Exacting judgment on the Philistines. That was not acting selfishly. And the, the Spirit of God rushed upon Samson and he killed a thousand men. The one thing we can say with certainty is that Samson's special strength was given to him as a gift from God because already early in the story, Samson truly has broken the vow of a Nazarite. So this gift, this strength that he has, was not because of his righteousness, not his own. We know for a fact Samson's a sinner. Instead, this ability that he has is all gift. And it's a gift given to him that he uses to save Israel. Samson is defeating the enemies of the Israelites. And I see this, you see this throughout the Bible, and some of you have seen this in real life. It's amazing how God sometimes often will work in, in spite of us, in spite of our, of our foolishness and our, and our stupid choices to accomplish his purpose. Now, notice he said earlier that Samson didn't achieve God's purpose, but here he's saying that, well, apparently Samson did. And then Samson, who is weary and thirsty after all of this, for the very first time on record, calls out to God for help. And he says, God, he says, give me something. 
give me something. He says, if you don't give me something here, I'm going to die. And God miraculously provides water for Samson. And he begins to regain strength. And then we see his foolish ego. In verse chapter 16, verse 1, it says, Okay, yeah, we skip over an important part, okay? Let me reread this, the last part of chapter 15. So Samson found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand, took it, and with it he struck 1,000 men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I struck down 1,000 men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. Again, pointing us to, again, <laughs> you know, the, this is another picture of Jesus. And the reason I say that is because the Apostle Paul points out the fact that in the wilderness, the the uh, the rock from which the Israelites drank, that Jesus was that rock. So here we've got another clear, clear picture of Jesus in the story. So like the Israelites of old who felt like they were going to die in the wilderness of thirst, Samson here, after doing what God has called him to do and delivering uh, Israel in a great salvation uh, from the Philistines, thousands of them fall by the hand of uh, Samson miraculously as a gift. Okay, He's thirsty and he prays, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out. This is just, I mean, again, the cross-reference to this would be about the fact that Jesus is the rock in the wilderness from which the Israelites drank. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En-Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And Samson judged Israel in the days of the Philistines for 20 years. 20 years. So from that moment, for 20 years, Samson serves as a judge in Israel. That's before we get to the story of Delilah. 20 years he judged Israel. Do you think he didn't achieve the purpose to which God called him to? One day, Samson went to Gaza where he saw a prostitute. And he went in to spend the night with her. Now, here's a guy who's now out of control. His ego is so big that he thinks he can pretty much do whatever he wants. He's going to compromise one thing after the next, thinking that somehow or another God is going to turn his head. I mean, after all, he's a judge. He's Samson. God somehow or another is going to give him a pass. Somehow he thinks he can violate God's standards, continue to sin, and get away with it. But now the Philistines, they think, we've got him trapped. We've got him trapped. He is in the house with a prostitute. And we're going to attack him. We're going to catch him when he's weak. And yet Samson, for whatever reason, comes outside. He takes the city gates and two posts, lifts them up out of the ground, and carries them to a top of a hill many miles away. Now you go, why would he do something like that? We have no idea. Just to show off. Just to show that he could do that. 
He's just showing how, off how strong of a man he is. Samson has, has, has slipped into a self-centeredness and into a deep amount of pride. And instead of using his God-given strength for God's purposes, he is using it for his own purposes. He's just using it to show off now. And then one day, Samson meets his match. And her name was what? Delilah. Her name means to bring low. Okay? I don't know if any of you have a girl named Delilah in your house. Her name means to bring low. I know some of you listen to her on the radio. Now you would think she plays love songs. I don't listen to her. Now, you would think that he wouldn't have known that she was bad news. If Samson had been walking with God, he would have avoided this woman. He would have avoided this situation. If his life was where it was supposed to be, if he had been following after God, this would have never happened. But Samson was a prime candidate for a stupid human trick because his pride has numbed his senses. His ego has made himself think that he's bigger than life outside of God's, God's boundaries. By the way, I, I was just checking the notes on the Lutheran study Bible about Samson carrying the gates you know, up the hill. He, here's what it says. Samson tore the entire structure out of the wall and carried it up a hill and set it up so all could see it. This prodigious feat of strength with the gates that were supposed to guarantee the city's security made a mockery of the Philistines. Um, It wasn't that he was just showing off. He made a mockery of the Philistines. It seems like everything that Samson does, this miraculous strength that he has, is to make a mockery of the Philistines, whom God is judging. And he believes he's bulletproof. He believes nothing can touch him. And some of you may have heard this story before. Delilah is also a Philistine. And her leaders bribe her and says, and they say to her, if you can find out the secret to his strength, we'll give you a ton, a ton of money. Now, the only thing that matched Samson's sex drive was Delilah's desire for money. I agree here. And Delilah plays the role of Judas in this story because this picture points us to Christ. And so she seduces him. And in Judges sixteen six, it says, Delilah said to Samson, Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. Now, that's some kind of pickup line, isn't it? Wow. What says I love you better than how can I hurt you? I mean, that's, that's really what's going on here. Samson says, okay, here's the deal. You tie me up with seven fresh cords and my strength will be zapped. And so in the middle of the night, she binds him up and she cries out, Samson, the Philistines are coming. The Philistines are coming. And he breaks the cords loop and he runs off the Philistines. Verse 10 said, Delilah comes to Sam. She says, you've made a fool of me. You've, you've, you've lied to me. Come now, tell me how you can be tied. And Samson says, okay, tie me up with new ropes. New ropes is what the, is a trick. And when you do that, I just turn into a kitten. She binds him up. She cries out, Samson, the Philistines are coming. He breaks the ropes. He runs off the Philistines. Now, he's getting closer to the truth. And I want to tell you, pride and foolishness, deadly combination. Verse 13. Delilah then said to Samson, until now you have been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me how you can be tied. And he replied, if you weave the seven braids of my head into the fabric on on the loom and tighten it with the pin, I will become as, as weak as any other man. And so while he's sleeping, Delilah took the seven braids 
of his head, wove them into the fabric. Now, basically, what she thinks now is the, is, is, is the power, is the source of his strength is a big updo. And so she takes his hair and she does that. And then she cries out, Samson, the Philistines are coming. And all of a sudden he pulls his hair down, takes the pin out, starts shaking it, runs the Philistines off. Now, it gets even more interesting. Verse 16, verse 15. Then she said to him, how can I say, how can you say I love you when you won't confide in me? This is the third time you have made a fool of me and I ha- you haven't told me the secret of your great strength. Now, <laughs> I love this next part. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until, she was t- until he was tired to death. So he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said. And because I have been a Nazarite set apart to God since birth, if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me and I would become as weak as any other man. Now I want you to understand something. He tells her the truth, but he also tells her a lie. His strength was not in his hair. It was in his God. And he forgot that. The hair was just a reminder that he was supposed to be dedicated to God. And so she sets the final trap. She puts Samson to sleep on her lap and she shaves his head. And now we see what may be quite possibly the the saddest verse in the entire Bible. Judges chapter 16, verse 20. Then she called, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he awoke up from his sleep and he thought, I'll go out as before and shake myself free. Again, notice, I'm saying that this is a picture. This story points us to Christ. Is it any wonder that Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss? Here Delilah betrays Samson, having him fall asleep in her lap, betraying him for pieces of silver, the same way Judas betrayed Jesus. And God's going to save his people through the death of his servant. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. He did not know that the Lord had left him. You say, how in the world could he not know that the Lord had left him? And the Lord had left him. What comes to my mind, the story points us to the crucifixion of Christ, his betrayal and his sufferings and his passion. The Lord had left him. Sounds a lot like what we hear Jesus crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think it's, for, I think it's because for years he allowed his heart towards God to grow cold. He got used to living a spiritless life. His heart hardened with every compromise. He sure is reading a lot into the 20 years there of Samson's life that he judged Israel. His hearing became dulled with every prideful act. Some of you may be in this room thinking, you know what, I don't need God. You've even convinced yourself that you can make it on yourself but without God, without his word, without walking with him. But in the end, guess what, you're wrong. Samson and you are nothing without him. You're nothing without his power in your life. So the Philistines, they seize him and they gouge his eyes out and they bind him with chains and they make him a grinder in the prison. Basically, Samson now is a blind man, big, 
basically pushes round and round like this all day long, grinding wheat for the Philistines. And we see a foolish ending. Look at verse 23. Now the rulers of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their God, and to celebrate, saying, Our God has delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. And you know what? This is one of the worst parts of sin. When you give the enemies of God a chance to gloat and brag. When they're feeling good, Samson is brought in like a circus act. He's entertainment for them. Hey, bring in Samson. We need a laugh. Bring in the strong guy with no eye. Bring him in. We need it. We need someone to laugh at. They throw stuff at him. They take turns mocking him. They t- take turns hitting him. He, and, and while he's doing it, does this not sound like the crucifixion of Christ? If you're the if you're the Christ, take yourself down from the cross. He saved others, and he can't save himself. Mocking him. And hurling insults at him. He's groping for his attackers in midair. He can't see them, but he continues to be made fun of. And he finally asks this young boy who leads him around. He says, lean me on the pillars that hold up the building to rest. I just want to rest against the pillars. And with his hands on two supporting poles, I mean, there's, now there's thousands of Philistines inside this building, the leaders He prays the second recorded prayer, only the second prayer in this entire story. He says, Lord, strengthen me just one more time. Lord, strengthen me just one more time. And God does it, and Samson pushes on the pillars. You you know, I've, I've seen this picture before. Samson pushes on the pillars, and they just topple over, and the whole building collapses, killing everyone inside of the building, including Samson himself. The Judges 1631 says that his family had a funeral for him. And I've often wondered, as I've read this, I wonder what was said at his funeral. I doubt they talked about his devotion to God. I'm sure nobody was was, was wanting to name a building after him in Israel. Um, He saved Israel. Through his sacrificial death, he saved Israel from slavery to the Philistines. Uh, Matter of fact, you, you don't meet... A whole lot of boys named Samson, do you? Meet a lot of dogs named Samson. Not a lot of children. And you look at a guy like this, the strong guy, the judge. He only finished 20 years of his, of, of his, of his time of being a leader. Most had 40. And you look and you go, what a waste. So much potential, so much going for him, but he threw it all away. What might have been here? I mean, that's the haunting question here. I mean, what could have been? What, what would he have been like if he would have been a man after God's own heart? If he would have, he would have been a man who sought God? What, what would he have been if he could have been a man who exercised self-control? What if he, what, what if he would have married a godly woman and, and raised godly children? I mean, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? I mean, think how different his... Um, the story is what the story is. God raised him up and delivered Israel through the hands of his sacrificial death. The same way he saves us. His legacy would be right now. As you're thinking about that, I want to ask you a question. If you were to die right now, what would people say at your funeral? People will sometimes come up to me after a funeral and say, Pastor, that was a good funeral. You know what? Let me tell you about something about funerals. 
You preach your own funeral by the way you live. You pre- Let's talk about how people discuss Jesus' death. Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13 says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Yeah. See, that's the thing. People considered Jesus to be cursed. You think Samson's death is scandalous. And yet, God delivered Israel from the hand of the Philistines through that scandalous death. That death, Samson's death, points us to Christ's death. And his death was a scandal. Because scripture says, cursed is everyone who was hung on a tree. So Jesus is considered to be cursed. Smitten and afflicted by God because he was hung on a tree. This is why the Apostle Paul, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, says this in verse 18. The word of the cross, that's the death of Jesus Christ. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Think of, I mean, take the shame of Samson's death and multiply it times a thousand. That's how shameful a crucifixion is. The one who is crucified, that's how disappointing that death is. Um... One could say because of his crucifixion, it didn't seem that Jesus was righteous. It's clear that he was cursed. For since the wisdom of the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to the Jews. And that's utter folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is lowly and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or with wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. The scandal of Samson's death is the scandal of Christ's death. And God saved his people through the death of both of these men. One to point us to Christ and one the fulfillment of that picture. Preach your own funeral by the way that you live. What do you want people to say at your funeral? You want them to say, here's a guy or gal who fulfilled their purpose in life, in their life. I mean, I, I think about little Regan Boatner, and I think, here's a little girl two and a half years old and probably touched more people in her two and a half years than most of us will ever do in our lifetime. But all of us in this room, so much potential, purpose. God's given you a purpose. He's, he has a plan for your life. And either it will be said about you. Uh, you know, I hope the good news is a lot better than he has a plan for my life. I mean, I look at somebody like Steve Jobs. He changed the world. But it's highly questionable as to whether or not he died in the faith. Yesterday, I mean, it's all over the news, all over the country, but especially here in Indianapolis. Dan Weldon, the, the winner of this year's Indianapolis 500, dies in a fiery crash. No one could accuse him of, not, of living a purposeless life. This is a man who twice won the Indianapolis 500. There's got to be something more than just having a purpose-driven life. It's not the gospel. And it's not like you earn your purpose. Samson didn't earn it. It was given to him as a gift. That you, le you lived a life well done. That you lived a life well lived or... Man, so much potential, so much promise, but just never realized, my goodness, a life well wasted. Is that not what they were saying about Jesus when he was hanging on the cross? He saved others. Can't he save himself? What a shame this is. Did Jesus finish well? Three important things we learned from Samson's life real quick. First of all, you can appear to be successful. You can appear in the, in the eyes of the world to have it all together and yet still be living out of God's given purpose for your life, missing it, not hitting it. And you're making it sound like somebody, everybody has like some secret hidden purpose to which God has called them to. You want to know what your purpose is? You were called to be a good dad, a good mom, a good husband, a good wife. A good employee. How can, I, how can I speak so confidently of that? Scripture tells you to do that. Aside from that, can't promise that any of you have any other purpose aside from that. Achieving everything the world has to offer, but yet still living, missing out. God's given purpose for your life, failing in that area. You look at Samson's life, it says he was a set apart to God from birth. He was, he was to be the deliverer of the Israels, Israelites from the hands of the Philistines. That was his purpose in life. And he fulfilled it. Even in his death. What a tragedy to look at his life. A life well wasted. Another thing we need to remember is that foolish choices carry consequences. Samson lost everything. Think about it for a moment. He lost his eyes. He lost his useful, usefulness. He lost his life. He lost his legacy. 
He lost the whole opportunity to, 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 to allow his life to, to count, to, the, the opportunity to bring God glory with his life. I, I want you to know something. He did. <laughs> he, he brought a lot of glory to God through his life. The fact that his sacrificial death saved Israel from the hand of the Philistines and points us to Christ who saves us from the hands of those who enslave us, sin, death, and the devil by his sacrificial death. Oh, Samson gives all kinds of glory to God in ways that I could only imagine or wish that I could. Satan will strip you of everything precious. Everything that's precious, and he will turn you into a slave grinding in a dungeon. And we've seen it, haven't we? I mean, we see it all the time. We, we, see, we see a person who, whose secret sins, basically just, when they're found out, they stun everybody, and they just leave, they leave him with nothing but a bunch of carnage behind him. We hear of pastors, I mean, over and over, who throw their ministry away for a mistress. We think about the, the promising athlete who's got it all, you know, signs a million dollars, a million dollar contract plus, you know, and yet his career is cut short because of just foolish, stupid decisions. No self-control. And yet nothing is more scandalous. As scandalous and horrible as those sins are, nothing is more scandalous than a pastor who doesn't preach Christ and him crucified for our sins from all of the passages of the scriptures even the life of Samson. That's even more heinous than had Brian Bloy committed adultery. I mean, think about the long list of rock stars and Hollywood celebrities, uh, actresses and actresses, enslaved or dead due to stupid choices. I mean, you make your choices and then your choices make you. You make your choices and then your choices make you. And maybe you need this morning to choose today to turn to God and to live a life devoted to him. Because I want to promise you something. You Notice the emphasis. It's all law. Where's the gospel, Brian? Just living the law doesn't erase sin as if you could live the law anyway. Make that choice and God will see it to it that that choice makes you. you will, God, will, God will take responsibility for that choice. And then I want to share one more thing with you because this is the hope in all of this. How you finish is more important than how you start. Then look at the scandal of Christ's crucifixion and make sense of that. That's why the preaching of Christ and him crucified for our sins is a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks. The cross is a scandal. Because to their eyes, Christ didn't end well at all. One of my closest mentors told me one years and years ago, he said, how you finish is more important than how you start. It is possible to waste a great life, to start well and to finish poorly. I mean, so sad. And some of you in this room this morning, you started off great, great childhood, Wonderful parents, like no, none of us starts off great. We all start off dead in trespasses and sins. That's the problem. Each and every one of us is a sinner by nature. That's the reason why we sin. 
life-giving church that you were part of growing up, awesome career, fabulous family, and here you are, you've fallen so, so far away. And if you don't turn back to God, you don't turn things around, guess what? You're not going to finish well. And I say that to you in love. Listen, how you finish is more important than how you start. Now, what if I didn't start it right? What, what if you didn't start off right? Listen, it's never too late to turn things around. You think about the Bible. So many people in the Bible stumbled out of the gates. Moses was a murderer. Rahab was a harlot. Paul was a persecutor of Christians. All of these folks, they started off on the wrong foot, but God intercepted their life and helped them to finish strong. Uh, no, they all trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins. It's not that God came along and helped them clean up their act. God forgave them. And as a result of it, God sanctified them and they made some progress in holiness. But that's not the gospel. Progress in holiness is not the gospel. That's the result and the fruit of the gospel. And like them, listen, maybe you didn't start off so hot. You look back at your life growing up and you go, Maybe? None of us starts off hot. We all start off dead in trespasses and sins. You go, man, not, not a great childhood, not a great upbringing, not a whole lot of problems. But you know what? You sense something's going on inside of you. You feel drawn to God, the spiritual things, to, to start a life of faith. It doesn't matter how you started. What matters is how you finish. And I, oh, this is just so steeped in bad law. And I don't care what your background is, where you came from, who your daddy was, how much he hurt you, whatever's going on there. It's how you finish. That's what's important. And I want to read a verse to you that hopefully will bring you hope. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone, anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Yeah, you're kind of in the middle. Uh, that's the therefore of the gospel. You need to preach the gospel here, Brian. It's good to finish well when you've started off wrong. And I want to tell you something. It's possible. It's possible for any one of you this morning. But you want to know the best thing? The best thing is to start well and to finish well. I love what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians. He says in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, Brother, I, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of anything. But the one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, I strain towards what is ahead. And I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul says, you know what? I, I didn't start off so well. But when Christ came into my life, he gave me a brand new beginning. And I could brag all day long about what I did in the past. But I'm not concerned about any of that. The good, the bad, the ugly, whatever. I'm focusing, I'm focusing my whole life on finishing well. I'm reaching out for what God has for me next. To not, to not waste my life, but for God to just look at my life and say, here's a life that was well lived. In order for that to happen, God has to basically see that you've lived the law perfectly. I want you to bow your head for a moment. Okay, we're done. So there you go. Um, a complete mishandling of the uh, Samson text and um, saying things about Samson that are just not found there in the text at all, a misreading of it completely, and a selective omission of important data that would have changed the whole story had he rightly handled the text.
as a result of it, we got a different gospel here. The gospel of if you uh, live rightly and don't throw things away, then you can live up to your God-given potential. It's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The good the good news of the gospel is that everybody who doesn't live up to their God-given potential, who does things that, well, foolishly throw away things in life, even if you find yourself poor and homeless or begging outside of the home of a wealthy person and sick with sores where the dogs are licking your sores, Christ died for you. The good news of the gospel is not necessarily that you're going to have a purpose-driven life here. The good news of the gospel is that Christ lived a purpose-driven life, and his purpose was to save you, to live a perfectly sinless life in your place. And his righteousness is imputed to you, and your sins imputed to him, and you are forgiven by his blood through faith as a gift, not by works. It's clear from the Samson story that Samson did not earn that strength that he had, that it was given to him as a gift. In the same way, your salvation, won for you by Jesus Christ on the cross, you didn't earn it. It's offered to you as a gift. Repent, therefore, and be forgiven. For that's what the gospel calls us to do. To trust him for the forgiveness of our sins and for every rebellious act against God's law. Every commandment we didn't keep, every foolish decision that we made, all of those were laid on Christ. And like Samson, Jesus wins your salvation through his bitter sufferings and death, sacrificially for you. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. We truly depend upon you and your financial contributions to keep bringing this important radio outreach to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with us, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of the friendly yellow buttons, and thank you for your support. So what'd you think? You know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs> 